afternoon. You are listening to The Scoop on CFRC 101.9 FM, CFRC.ca, and podcasting on Spotify and iTunes. I'm Kareem Mosna. This week on The Scoop. There was something like almost 50 orders of the Catholic Church that were involved in running residential schools. And it may have been the gray nuns or, you know, all these different orders. And 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 I can imagine some lawyer saying to the Pope or people that were writing this, well, you know, it was really those orders that did this, not the Catholic Church. Pope Francis was in Canada last week for what he calls his pilgrimage of penance, seeking reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. I spoke with Bob Watts, the former interim executive director of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, who also helped negotiate the Indian Residential School settlement to get his response to the historic papal apology. You're joining me, of course, to talk about uh, Pope Francis and the historic uh, apology that uh, mm-hmm. has come down over this over at a couple of locations across Canada over the past few days. Now, it's not without its critics. Uh, Of course, just reading earlier, the former chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Murray Sinclair, saying the apology, uh, it still leaves a deep hole. I'd love to hear your thoughts uh, on this deep hole that Murray Sinclair pointed out. Yeah, I'm I'm worried that that the apology itself isn't the fulsome policy that our apology that so many people were anticipating. Um, and and a couple things when I when I read this, first of all, like I I think it's it's wonderful that the Pope responded to survivors their request that he come to Canada to make the apology in Canada, and that he accepted that invitation and he's here and clearly he's not in in terrific health, so he's doing this at some sacrifice, which I which you know I recognize and admire. Um, and then I, I look at the apology, I watched it, I've read it a number of times, and I think there's a few things that many of us expected to, to see in this. Uh, one of them was um, to really talk about the role of the church. So he talked about individuals, um, talked about individuals kind of being consumed with um, colonization, and um, and doing evil deeds, and talked about you know this deplorable uh, evil that it was a disastrous era error incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, but he like it seems to point to a few individuals and not saying you know the the, the church apologizes. Like the church is apologizing on behalf of some individuals. Um, he does say the church kneels before God and implores his forgiveness for the sins of her children, which, which I think kind of gets there. But I, I, think, I think people just want to hear straight out, you know, the, um, as the head of the Roman Catholic Church, I apologize on behalf of the church for all the terrible harms and wrongdoings that were committed against Indigenous children and families in Canada. You know, it's something like that. So, you know, I, I helped negotiate the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. There was something like almost 50 orders of the Catholic Church that were involved in running residential schools, and it may have been the gray nuns or, you know, all these different orders. And... 
and and I can imagine some lawyer saying to the Pope or people that were writing this, well, you know, it was really those orders that did this, not the Catholic Church, qua the Catholic Church. But I don't think people care about all those, how the Church constructed itself. They care about the fact that they want to hear an apology from the Pope on behalf of the Church. So I, I think that's still something that he needs to, to clarify. Um, he talked about this as a beginning, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that he's going to further articulate what else is coming, that there's a need for action. And he talked about no effort must be spared to create a culture able to prevent such situations from happening. Well, what, what does that look like? To me, that sounds like he should be rescinding the doctrine of discovery because the doctrine of discovery was fundamental to the culture that allowed Indian residential schools to happen. The Indian Act in Canada happened. The dispossession of First Nations um, and other Indigenous peoples of their lands, their homelands. So to me, that would be a, it would be fabulous, and it's what's expected, is to disavow the doctrine of, uh, of discovery. And, I, you know, when I read the Doctrine of Discovery, I would say, what, what modern religious institution wouldn't want to disavow that? And, and maybe it should have been disavowed in the 1500s, because it really had no place then, and it has no place now. The Doctrine of Discovery you refer to the, in the sense that European settlers could claim uh, lands uh, th that were owned by non-Europeans, from my understanding. Yeah, non-Europeans and non-Christians. And non-Christians, thank you. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it talked about pagans and talked about being put into perpetual slavery. I mean, there's a lot of things that are just like plain, really ugly about that and, and really have no place in terms of sort of the modern architecture of society. Um, so why not disavow that? And it may shake people up a bit. Um, I don't think the world's going to fall apart. But I think it's, it's significant to Indigenous people and other peoples around the world uh, that this happened. I think the church records need to be given over to, to Indigenous people. Um, there, I mean, that should have happened years ago. There's no question about that. There's the expectation in the settlement agreement that they would have done that starting in 2006. Um, and I think this, the money that the church owes, um, I think they should just write a check hmm. and pay it all and then work with the Council of Catholic Bishops in Canada to figure out, you know, how to repay the Vatican or whoever writes the check. But they should just write the check and not just say, well, we're going to count on uh, parishioners over who knows what period of time to fulfill our obligation. Just fulfill your obligation. I believe you mentioned earlier that you uh, served on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as well? No, I was the interim executive director that helped us set up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Okay, and uh, what was it that you worked on specifically? I was, I was in charge of all aspects of setting up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, from the policies that underscore the work of the TRC to take the Indian, settle, Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement and um, and imagine what that would look like practically in terms of operating in Canada. 
So all of those policies that were associated with it, the budget for the, the TRC and the um, setting up the process for the appointment of the first set of uh, commissioners for the TRC. Why do you feel it took so long to to, to get to this point where the the Pope, uh, you know, is, is, is giving this historic apology? Why did it take so long? You know, I, I, I wish I knew. Um, I know that National Chief Fontaine uh, led a delegation to meet with Pope Benedict in 2009. There's, there was great anticipation that the apology might happen then, but it didn't. And, and I think it's, you know, it's the same thing that happens uh, when um, institutions um, go about trying to do the right thing and make an apology or make reparations is uh, like lawyers and other advisors get a hold of this and say, oh, you can't really say that. And you're going to expose yourself to this or you're going to. And, 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 and really, this is, um, this is something from the spirit and from the heart, not generated by lawyers. And, and I, I really fear that, um, um, you know, maybe the, maybe the Pope hasn't been getting the best advice. In some of the research I've been doing, it's really looking at that the church is said to have instigated, uh, you know, in terms of urging the federal government to be more aggressive, you know, in their efforts uh, with, with indigenous cultures. What exactly did the church do in that regard? Well, I mean, it, it was, was certainly a partnership, a cooperative arrangement between church and government in terms of residential school and some of the experiments with education prior to, to residential schools. There's a famous quote that gets used uh, about industrial schools, which were one of the predecessors to residential schools, but the kids would go home at night. Um, the purpose was the same, to assimilate, aggressively assimilate, to civilize and to Christianize children. Um, but one of the complaints was, that this is the way it was written, it said the wigwam is stronger than the classroom, which is interpreted to mean that all the good work being done during the day to civilize, assimilate, and Christianize children was being undone in the evening when they went home to their loving parents and siblings and extended family. And the solution was to remove children from the influence of their family. And residential schools was was born out of that idea. And then, of course, sadly, they 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 would lose their their culture, their identity, and of course, there was some horrific abuse that went on. That's been well documented. Absolutely, I mean, punished for speaking their own language, and uh, um, you know, mental abuse, uh, psychological abuse, sexual abuse. I mean, all these things occurred, and. uh, over this, you know, terrible era, presidential school era. And it's really only recently that, you know, Tr- Truth and Reconciliation Day, uh, it's really only recently that as a society we are uh, talking about this. That That's very true. I, you know, I think one of the hopes would, was that while the TRC was, was operating, uh, that we would have this national dialogue and we would, you know, civil society and indigenous people and government and churches would, would engage in, you know, some visioning about where we're going as a country. 
and and how we would be jointly on a healing journey together. Because as National Chief Fontaine said, like Canada has been scarred by this experience, and Canada needs healing too. Um, and and that really didn't happen. I mean, when you look at the polling, there's really good support for reconciliation, um, which I think speaks a lot to the people of Canada. Um, but in terms of actually manifesting that, we're we're kind of stuck. And I think that through these, you know, when the first unmarked graves were uh, recovered and rediscovered at Kamloops, it was it was like a punch in the stomach for the whole country. And and of course we found out that there's actually thousands more. Um, some of that we knew even before the TRC was set up about the unmarked graves and missing children. Um, and there was work being done on that, you know, as we were setting up the uh, the the uh, TRC. But uh, so I think that was a real awakening for for Canada. And you know, when I think about some of the um, um, deliberations and maybe even agony that different governments, uh, municipalities, uh, different associations went through after that, um, uh, the 215 unmarked graves were recovered, rediscovered at Kamloops. People were like, "Should should we even celebrate Canada Day or?" What should we do? Like this weighed heavily on the conscience of, uh, of uh, Canadians, um, which I, I think is a small thing. I'm, I'm really happy that that sort of thoughtfulness was brought to bear from so many people in terms of reacting to, to Kamloops. So we've just had this historic apology from the Pope, uh, what what do you hope to see now? I mean, this is this is only the start of something. I I hope to see well from the Catholic Church perspective action on the issue of of records on the issue of monies owed, um, maybe some really positive good neighbor. Um, uh, moves in terms of land back. I mean, the Catholic Church owns a lot of property in this country. Um, there could be some really part gestures to uh, communities in terms of uh, in terms of land. And land has always been one of the central issues in terms of relationship between church government and Indigenous people. Um, the, of course, the doctrine of discovery. Like, I'm hoping some of these things still happen this week. I, I really am. And uh, as I think about, you know, the, the legacy for Pope Francis and leaving Canada with, with some unfinished business, I don't think that's, I think that's a good legacy for I, I don't think it, it represents him uh, from everything I can see in terms of what an incredible human being he is. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that other things become part of his legacy with respect to the Indigenous people of Canada. Excellent. Okay, Bob, thank you very much uh, for sharing your thoughts with me today.
Bob Watts is the former interim executive director of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and distinguished fellow at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University. You're listening to The Scoop on CFRC 101.9 FM, CFRC.ca, and podcasting through Spotify and iTunes. I'm Kareem Mosna, and now we turn things over to Christina, who's going to have an update on the local arts scene. The Agnes Etherington Arts Centre just welcomed many new exhibitions on July 30th, all of which will run until December 4th. The first one that opened was Fugitive Rituals. Writer and scholar Tina Camp defines fugitivity as the daily practice of refusal. Using this definition, the exhibition itself is a fugitive act of self-determination, which actively shapes the culture in which it is embedded through the repetition, returning, and shifting of its practices, its daily rituals. The next exhibition that just opened is Where Were You in 92? Through experimentation with sound, image, found texts, and acts of counter-archiving of personal and political experiences, Where Were You in 92? brings forth the embodied archives of the groundbreaking legacy of Fresh Arts, a Black artist-led program that was born out of the fury of impassioned youth. Pamela Matharu, one of the mentees of Fresh Arts, returns not only to this pivotal moment but also to her mentor, Winsome Winsome whose more than a decade-long activist history in Kingston, Ontario, is underrecognized. In this exhibition, Mathara looks back to Toronto's 1992 youth-led uprising on Young Street that gave rise to fresh arts. The final exhibition that just opened is The Masks We Wear, which is an installation made by the previously mentioned Ashanti Maroon artist Winsome Winsome. She has a remarkable career as a multimedia artist with a background working in varied media. Be sure to catch these installations at the Agnes open until December 4th. We have some rather major news from the Union Gallery. Karina Magazzini is stepping down as the gallery director, which means they are currently seeking a gallery director to join their creative and collaborative team. The application deadline is August 6, 2022 at 11.59pm. To view the full job description, as well as application details, you can head to their website at uniongallery.queensu.ca. Modern Fuel Artist Run Centre just held their closing reception for their summer exhibitions on Thursday, July 28th. The exhibitions that came to a close were Documents from Antarctica, Moving Forward Looking Back, and Rough as Silk. With those exhibitions having come to a close, Modern Fuel is also celebrating the return of their summer Long Days August Arts Residency. For the month of August 2020, Long Days offered participating artists access to a personal selection of the gallery to use for studio space, access to equipment in the new media workspace, a year-long membership to Modern Fuel, a $100 stipend, and feedback sessions with the select members of the board and local curators, administrators, academics, and artists. Artists were also given promotional support for future exhibitions and events that resulted from the residency. So be sure to drop by their space in the Tet Center to see what the August artists and residencies are up to. An annual backpack program encourages community members to help set students up for success. United Way KFLNA is collecting donations of backpacks, school supplies, and funds to help families with low income in KFLNA. With back-to-school season right around the corner, United Way KFLNA is encouraging community members to support students. Going back to school comes with lots of excitement and anticipation. It can also be an anxious and stressful time for many families as they do their best to set their young students up for success. This is where the backpack program comes in. Coordinated by the United Way KFLNA with donations from individuals, community businesses, and organizations, the program distributes backpacks and school supplies to ensure that families and children have all they need for a successful school year. 
In 2021, thanks to the community's generosity and support, over 1,700 children and youth started the school year with supplies and backpacks. As a result of the pandemic and rising costs, the need is even greater this year. The most needed items include backpacks, lunch bags, pens, pencils, rulers, math sets, markers, crayons, scientific calculators, and pencil cases. Donations will be collected at the United Way office at 417 Baggett Street from Monday to Friday until August 12th, after which volunteers will pack bags for distribution. For a full list of recommended items by age group or to donate monetarily, community members can visit unitedwaykfla.ca slash backpackprogram. Theatre Kingston Fringe Festival will be kicking off this Thursday, August 4th. Throughout the 11 days, it'll be at two venues with 11 shows and 88 performances. Fringe festivals are all about providing an accessible venue for independent theatre artists to produce and perform their work in front of an audience. Virtually anybody can submit a show to the Fringe and festivals place no limits on content. So shows can be bold, raw, and uncensored, or funny, light, and silly. Each show will be performed eight times over the course of 11 days, and you can read what each show is about on the Fringe Guide 2022 at theaterkingston.ca. For tickets this year, a single ticket is $15, a frequent Fringer ticket, which is four shows, is $48, and the full TK Dash, which is 11 shows, is $132. You can get your tickets at kingstongrand.ca or at the Grand Theatre box office. Blue Canoe Theatrical Productions presents Footloose. Their opening night will be this Thursday, August 4th. Follow the story of big city boy Ren McCormick, who moves from Chicago to a small town. While Ren and other spunky youth fight for the rights to dance on the streets, get ready to dance in your seats. Blue Canoe is a youth nonprofit organization striving to create opportunities for young performers under the age of 30 in Kingston. They will be performing Footloose the Musical at the Domino Theater near Queens West Campus. Tickets are $20 for adults and $15 for students and seniors. The first show time will be August 4th at 7pm and then also at 7pm on Friday and Saturday. And there will also be a matinee on Saturday at 2pm, as well as a matinee on Sunday at 2pm. The next round of shows will kick off next Thursday, August 11th at 7pm, then on Friday, August 12th at 7pm. And finally, Saturday, August 13th, they will have another matinee at 2pm and 7pm for the closing show. You can get your tickets at kingstongrand.ca. That's all I have for you today. Thank you for tuning in to this week's news updates on CFRC 101.9 FM. And that's all for The Scoop this week. If you want to keep up with local news, be sure to catch daily news briefs every weekday morning at 8 and tune into Citizen K Tuesdays at 5. If you have any news tips or uh, anything you'd like to share, please send me an email, news at cfrc.ca. Thank you very much for listening.